I'm turning this evening to Psalm 116, verse 1. Psalm 116, verse 1. I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. And our title is, How Can God Be Loved? Well, the psalmist utters these tremendous words. The psalm is not ascribed in our Bibles, but in all probability, it is a psalm of David. It looks like a psalm of David. This is controversial. There are many suggestions as to who may have been the author, but it certainly looks like a psalm of David, and the way it is presented it would appear to be that. And there were two particular points of the psalm, but I won't come into that detail now, which uh, uh, echo uh, David's words elsewhere in the psalms. But here it is, this statement, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. How can God be loved? I mentioned this before, but uh, when I was uh, a youngster in late teenage, I could not understand this. I heard this sentiment. I was not a worshipper or a believer. I heard this sentiment and I thought to myself, this is impossible. How can God be loved? You cannot touch him. You cannot see him. You cannot sense him. How can you love a God who cannot in any manner be sensed by you? Seemed impossible. It seemed to me to be just an empty sentiment. You love things that you can see. You love things of beauty. You love things you can take in with your senses. You love objects, things. You may love possessions. You may love uh, beautiful things. You may love ideas. You may love a cause. A number of different things that you can love. But you cannot love something you cannot appreciate, sense, see, understand, the invisible, almighty God. So how could the psalmist possibly say this? It defied sense. But of course, it did for me, because uh, in order to love God, you must have some definite experience of him. You must have some reason for loving him. You must have had an experience in which you most definitely encountered him, and he dealt with you. And so you know him to be real, and love it full of loving kindness and tender mercy. You must have an experience. And indeed the psalmist says this, I love the Lord because of something. He has some tangible evidence, some experience. And here it is, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. And he puts it in a typically Davidic way and a cumbersome way to embrace 
all that he means. He cried out with great earnestness and he made supplications, very deep entreaties and appeals to God. And he believes that he was heard. So we have to examine this. Is it possible for you, for me, to have a definite experience of Almighty God bringing us to love him? This is the issue here. Well, how did it happen? That's the first question. How did it happen for the psalmist or for David, if it was David? Well, yes, he tells us. Verse 3, he seems to have had a tremendous need come into his life. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Well, that's very powerful language. The sorrows of death, he was convinced that only death lay before him. Of course, his experience may have been different from some terrible injury or sickness. His experience could have been that he simply had a famine of purpose and meaning in life. The bottom fell out of life. What's it all for? Confusion after, upon confusion, disappointment after disappointment. Perhaps he was going through a deep depression and the sorrows of death compassed him. They surrounded him, enfolded him. There seemed to be no way out. He was maybe drawn even to take his life. Or it was a grave illness in which he was certain of death. I found trouble and sorrow. Now that widens the scope of the need greatly. It moves us away a little bit from certain death. Perhaps it was a, a bereavement, a loss of somebody very close to the psalmist, someone who he deeply loved, someone on who he depended. The world would seem as nothing without this person. I found trouble and sorrow. Or maybe if it was King David, he knew times in his reign when he had the most subtle and sinister opposition and plotting against him. And uh, even his closest counsellor and advisor turned against him and plotted secret things. Well, was it something like that? The discovery that you were being undermined? that you were being thrust out, I found trouble and sorrow. The more we go on with this, the wider the range of possibilities becomes. And that's intentional. The psalmist means to embrace everything that could bring us down, whether sickness, sadness, sorrow, disappointment, uh, just failure of faith in anything and anyone. Interspersed with later verses, he tells us yet more about this. Verse 8, for example, Thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. That would embrace all the things we've spoken about. Possibility of death by execution, by some desperate illness, mine eyes from tears, considerable sorrow and depression, and misery, 
and my feet from falling, failure and being deposed, falling in some great way, falling into sin, perhaps. He speaks of all these things. And then in verse 10, he deepens the mystery. I believed, therefore have I spoken, I was greatly afflicted. And the words are interesting because affliction from the Hebrew is something which is done to you, like a whipping or a lashing or a scourging. It wouldn't be that literally necessarily, but I was greatly afflicted. I was assailed from outside myself by some enemies, some person, some great sequence of tragedies or difficulties. And verse 11, I said in my haste, all men are liars. Could that be the betrayal by a trusted counselor that undermines his trust in anyone and anything that anyone may say? So you have the picture, but coming back to verse three, there is some reason, some great need which brings him to an end of himself and self-confidence and self-reliance, an end of trust in fallen human beings, all in sin and a fallen world and causes him to go to God for help and for salvation and for forgiveness and mercy. He's going to mention all these things. So this is the first reason. How did he come to love the Lord? He ran into this great need. And that's often the way it is. Well, it's always the way it is. In some shape or form, the need comes. You run out of trust in this material world, having maybe put God out of the picture, thrust him out of life, ignored him, turned your back on him, trusted in this world, thought this place is everything. I can make a success of it. I can be happy. Believed all the world says, that wealth and fame and all the rest of it, and these things can give ultimate and deep and lasting satisfaction and peace. If nothing to fear, and you find all that unravels, and it isn't true. And with this need, it makes us think, makes us reflect, makes us feel our need. Well, how did he approach God? He begins the answer in verse 4. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. I beseech thee, deliver my soul. And these words are all important. Then, you open with the because, you now come to a then. My need drove me to pray, and I called upon the name of the Lord. It's interesting language. The language is full of illustrations. It's very graphic. Why called I? And that's literal. That's what he did. Because God is far away. That's the first thing we recognize. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. I didn't know him. He wasn't near to me. I was alienated from him by sin, by unbelief, by indifference to him. 
I had to call across that chasm to an absent from me God. I called upon him. I called upon the name of the Lord. And you notice the word Lord is in capital letters and it's repeated, O Lord, in capital letters. Well, that is the divine initials to the Israelites, the unpronounceable name of Almighty God, the sacred name, which simply means I am that I am, the self-existent, all-powerful God. This is important, friends. When you pray for help, because you come to an end of confidence in yourself and in this life, to whom do we pray? Do we pray to God as though he's nothing of great importance? Well, the psalmist sets the way. Oh, Lord, the self-existent, almighty source of everything, the God who needs no energy input, the God who needs no provision, he has, needs no fuel, nothing. Everything flows from him. The author and the source of life and wisdom, the source of everything. You have to acknowledge the greatness of God, the resources of God, the infinity of God, the infinite spirit beyond our reach, beyond our knowledge unless he discloses himself to us and reveals himself to us. That's another thing I never understood as a, as a youngster. Why, is there, why do people attach so much importance to the Bible? As if God would write a book. What a ridiculous concept. That's what I thought in youthful ignorance. Well, of course, God had to write a book. How else could we know anything about the infinite and the eternal being? and mind, unless he reaches into our world by some means and reveals himself to us, we know nothing of his mind, of how to find him, how to walk with him, what he's done about our sin problem. We learn nothing about his attributes, his ways, his plans, unless he reveals them. And so he must reveal Revelation, the Word of God, the Bible, this unique revelation of Almighty God. Then called I upon the name of the Lord, the great, the mighty, the source of all. I beseech thee, this is a humble posture, beseeching, not commanding, not demanding, but beseeching as somebody who deserves nothing, who has no rights, who has sinned against Almighty God, who must come as a, to make supplication, not to demand. I beseech thee, deliver my soul. The word deliver means rescue. Rescue my soul. What is the psalmist thinking about? Yes, he needs rescue from his problem, from his need, but as the psalm goes on, 
you see that he realizes he needs rescue from a lot of things. He needs rescue from judgment. He needs rescue from eternal punishment for his sins against God. He needs rescue from the power of sin, rescue from death, rescue from ignorance of God and alienation from him. So he says, O Lord, I beseech thee, I implore thee, I plead, rescue my soul. The word translated soul is the same as the word for life. It's translated soul when the context demands it, that it's talking about life plus, 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 more than just human sentient life, but the ongoing life of the soul in the presence of God. And when the context is talking about life with a string of pluses, talking about the soul, so the translators translate it that way. And that's correct, deliver my soul. And then you can see, what was this prayer of the psalmist? How can you describe it? Well, verse 5 tells us. He says, Gracious is the Lord, and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. The psalmist is telling us, I came to understand that I must pray to God, knowing that he will answer me by grace. Gracious is the Lord. I must plead for an answer by grace. What is grace? The word grace, as used here in the Bible, means entirely undeserved favor. That's grace. Lord, deal with me, not according to what I deserve, which is punishment and rejection. But Lord, deal with me according to grace, freely, with a blessing and a pardon and a new life that I never deserved and I haven't earned. Salvation is by grace, unearned, undeserved. And the psalmist knows that. Gracious is the Lord. That's the kind of prayer he answers a prayer that doesn't demand, a prayer that understands that God's answer will be free and undeserved out of the kindness of his heart. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. And I must tell you a little more about this verse 6. This is in the prayer of the psalmist. This is what he says. The Lord preserveth the simple. What is he saying? Is he simple? What does he mean? The Lord preserveth the simple. Well, the Hebrew word translated, the Lord preserveth, actually comes from two words put together which mean the Lord hedges about, surrounds with protection. The Lord hedges about Preserves is our chosen translation here, 
but he hedges about. Now listen to this. This is the Hebrew. The open. So the psalmist was very open. And that's what got him into trouble. In other words, he was naive. He was gullible. He was open. And so are we. So was I. Immensely open, naive, gullible. So may you be. You may be well qualified. You may be highly intelligent. But you may still be very open, gullible and naive in this sense. You believe whatever the world says. If unbelieving society says, don't believe in God, you don't. You're open to the influence and you receive it without question. If the world says, you have come about and so has everybody else and the whole universe by sheer accident and a series of accidents from big bangs and absolutely unintelligently coordinated changes over millions and billions of years. We believe it. We don't question it. Even if the evolutionists and atheism becomes ridiculous and having failed to prove that life ever started on earth it starts telling us that it came from another galaxy that we can't examine or explore the theories become ever more fanciful and absurd and ridiculous and untestable and still we believe it because we don't want God and we don't want to believe that's what the psalmist is talking about he acknowledges his own fault the Lord hedges about the open, the gullible, the naive. The world says, get rich and you'll be very happy. And you believe it. All its absurd formula. The Lord preserveth the gullible, the simple. You come to the Lord, he opens your eyes. And he shows you this is a fallen world. And you see it on every page of the Bible. And we need God, our creator. And we need his salvation. And we need to come to him. I was brought low. I was humbled, says the psalmist. And he helped me. That's wonderful. He helped me. He came to my aid and he dealt with me and what was the result of this by the way the word helped the Hebrew word is freed me he freed me our translators have decided he helped me and I can understand why but literally it's he freed me from my bondage to sin, my bondage to this world, my bondage to unbelief, my bondage to the condemnation of God. 
my bondage to everlasting loss. He freed me. He set me free. It truly is a deliverance. And the result runs from verse 7. Return unto thy rest, O my soul. It's a figure of speech. Be at peace. Now I've found the Lord, I understand. For the Lord hath dealt bountifully, very richly with thee. For thou hast, verse 8, delivered my soul from death mine eyes from tears and my feet from falling. And so he makes vows and pledges to God. He had a great need. He prayed humbly to God. He realized that God's help and salvation of his soul must be a free gift. And then he makes this vow. Verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in his sight a child of prayer in the land of the living. And he tells us really what was behind this prayer. Verse 10, I believed. I believed. Believed I was convinced. And so I trusted him. That's the essence of it. I became convinced that God and his promises and his word were right and unbelieving society had got it all wrong and would never be at peace. And I trusted God and his great power to save me and give me a new life. I believed and trusted. Therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Here's the vow, verse 12. What shall I render unto the Lord? for all his benefits toward me, I will take the cup of salvation. This is a phrase of David's. He uses it elsewhere. He talks about his portion, his inheritance, and his cup of salvation. I will take my portion. When you're saved, when you're converted, when you come to the Lord, you are given a portion, an inheritance, a new life where God will change you and guide you and use you through your life. He'll bless you with understanding, a new outlook. He'll change your heart, your feelings, your mind, your way of thinking, and your will. You'll have more strength over your sin. And you'll be able to seek his help also. He changes you in so many ways. It's your portion. And you will have added understanding and a sense of closeness to God and a river of evidence running through your life as your prayers are answered and as he uses you in his service and he will ever increase your joy and your appreciation of him. It's your portion, your inheritance, your lot. You receive, of course, most of it when you enter into eternal glory. But it's mapped out for you. God, who has a plan for you, plans your life and guides you through it. So David uses, or the psalmist uses, this language. 
I will take, verse 13, the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now. So you see his need, you see his approach to God and his prayer, you see a great experience that he has which changes him and you see his vow and his pledge to live for God and he proves him. No wonder he says, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. Now, dear friend, we know even more than the psalmist because the psalmist lived before Christ came. He knew the promises of God that a saviour would one day come who would perform the act and the work which would take away the guilt of all those who believed in God and would be saved. When he trusted God and God's grace and God's free salvation, he trusted in that coming saviour who would settle the matter in a mysterious, profound and wonderful way. We look back on that. So we bring the Saviour into this. Following the psalmist, may God give you a great need and open your eyes and cause you to feel this life is nothing if I cannot find my God and his help and his power. I see through it all. I've lost that naivety. I see through it and I want him and I need the forgiveness of my sin. Then you come to him in prayer and you realise this is going to be a free pardon, a free salvation purchased by Christ. He's come now. The second person of the Godhead has entered into human flesh. He's lived on earth. He's worked his mighty, compassionate miracles to demonstrate his divinity and his power and his goodness and his mercy. And he's gone to Calvary's cross willingly and voluntarily. And on that cross, the most profound thing in the history of the universe took place as Almighty God the Father put upon God the Son, Christ on Calvary's cross, all the guilt of all who would in time be forgiven and punished him instead of them. The atoning, substitutionary death of Christ. And when we go to God in prayer, saying, deliver my soul, Give me new life, put me on the road to heaven, take away my sin. We trust in the suffering and death of Christ on our behalf to take away our sin for us. And then we pledge ourselves to him. And the result is we truly know him. And day after day we prove him. And we're given great assurance that we are his. And we sense in a wonderful way that he hears us when we call upon him. And we see that unmistakable evidence 
piling up in our lives wonderfully. O Lord, says the psalmist, verse 16, truly, I am thy servant. I am thy servant. Thou hast loosed my bonds. May you all be able to say, because you've had a true experience of an encounter with God, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. Let's pray. Oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all. Deliver us from proud resistance. Deliver us from foolishness. Oh Lord, teach us the wonderful mercy of the gospel. Draw us to thyself and bring us to that place when we open our hearts and plead for salvation. Look upon us and bless us all. We ask it in the name of our Saviour, for his sake. Amen.